You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, it's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a beautiful day outside and uh, uh, we're here on this nice morning. Uh, Although uh, the politics that we're involved in at the moment is pretty sobering. Uh, Today uh, we're going to um, have a look at uh, some of those things. Uh, But um, first up, uh, you may be forgiven uh, for not knowing that uh, last night was basically the uh, Academy Awards of the uh, Asia-Pacific region. It's called the asia Pacific Screen Awards and it was on at the Gold Coast and uh, it uh, looks uh, it looks at films from 78 countries across the region uh, and uh, one of the uh, people who was up for a potential war- an award was uh, Robert Connolly for his film Blue Back which came out earlier this year it was set in uh, Western Australia it's uh, based on a Tim Winton novel and it's all about uh, intergenerational care of uh, environment. It's a fascinating film, lovely film, but uh, in fact it didn't win in the youth award area, but uh, uh, that's because there were so many other amazing films that were also there. But uh, I had a chat with him and I thought uh, you might like to share a little bit of that chat. Uh, because, uh, one, it's all about our region uh, and uh, it's all about things that uh, we don't normally think about because we're all focused on uh, what everybody else thinks from the other side of the world, really. Uh, but perhaps we should uh, get uh, our um, Asia-Pacific eyes on. Uh, we follow that with uh, our, um, a couple of, two little sections that I took out of uh, some recordings I did at the... Um, uh, Economic and Social Outlook Conference, which was on at Crown of all places on Thursday. Uh, it's an event that's actually put together by um, the Melbourne Institute, and uh, they're the people that put out the Hilda report, for example. It's a research uh, group at uh, set, um, located at Melbourne University, and they do it in partnership with uh, the Australian. Uh, and so there were a whole lot of bigwigs there, and uh, the two sections that we've got are things that um, are in the news at the moment. Uh, one was the response of the uh, chair of uh, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission in response to a question about Qantas, which I thought you might be interested in what she had to say. 
uh, it was it's only very short. Uh, and the second part, which is a bit longer, is uh, a piece, uh, informal style chat with uh, the Prime Minister Albanese, who gave the keynote speech over lunch. And uh, it's about what he had to say about Gaza and uh, um, China, because he's just come back from uh, America and uh, he's just about to go to China. So it, I thought you might be interested in what he actually had to say about it. We're going to go on and talk to uh, the director and uh, writer uh, of uh, You Can't Escape an Aussie Boy, which is going to go going to be on at the Butterfly Club. And uh, later, because, you know, I've just been a busy girl, uh, we're going to talk to Josh Cullen outside the uh, convention centre where uh, Rafu and community members went and took the uh, issue of uh, uh, unsafe and bad pay uh, and uh, price gouging to the... Uh, Coles AGM. I think they probably are multitasking the AGM people. They probably come to Melbourne because the Melbourne Cup's coming and then they thought they'd have the uh, AGM at the same time. Very convenient. I'm jumping to conclusions here, but uh, maybe that's why they were doing it. But anyway, they were greeted with uh, uh, irritated voices out the front and um, so we, I found out what was going on there and also a fantastic piece of news that came out of New South Wales uh, about the deprivatisation of New South Wales prisons. This is maybe the tur- the turning of the tide of uh, neoliberalism uh, is upon us, which is fantastic. And I'll just uh, make it... Oh, and this is the week it was... This is the week that was, is here and uh, Kevin is back in form. Uh, just for those people who might have been waiting for some um, stuff that I've done on uh, housing, we'll do that next week and uh, that gives me the opportunity to remind people that there's a rally for renters that's going to be on the corner of Smith and Gertrude Street in Fitzroy 1pm on Saturday the 11th of November. So perhaps Solidarity Breakfast will be a precursor to that event if we focus on public housing and everything housing next week. But uh, before we kick off, let's uh, let put you in the mood. <laughs> What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, 
It's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to go to a conversation that I had with uh, Director Robert Connolly who is nominated uh, as part of the um, Asia-Pacific Screen Awards which is held on the Gold Coast. It's uh, our version of the Academy Awards but of course it has much lower profile but uh, perhaps we should be more aware of the 78 countries that also produce movies as opposed to uh, the Americans. Um, Robert's film didn't win a blue back but that's only because the um, challenges were um, extremely uh, competent. Uh, the film that did win came from Kazakhstan. It's uh, Boria Salu and it's a film about uh, um, grandparents, uh, the practice of grandparents uh, adopting their children uh, even when their uh, parents are alive. That's very curious, isn't it? Anyway, uh, lots of great stories, lots of great uh, insights into other countries and other people. But uh, let's have a listen to the chat I had with Robert, who's a very interesting chap, I'll have to say. You were saying that it was quite exciting for you to be, uh, and you're a much awarded filmmaker, really, uh, to be up in the Gold Coast at the Asia Pacific Screen Awards with uh, Blue Black up for the Youth Award uh, for film. Tell me about uh, your what's going on there. Look, I think the um, Asia Pacific Screen Awards are wonderful. Um, I've been nominated a few times for other films I've been involved with over the years and I think that they're um, such an amazing celebration of cinema uh, from this region and have championed so many incredible films. I feel really delighted every time I get invited and nominated, but it's actually the first time that in my crazy career I've been able to get here. So I'm delighted to be here. I, I met with a whole panel of uh, young emerging filmmakers yesterday, which was incredible to see the future generation um, coming through. And uh, I think it's it's just such an important celebration of, of cinema and um, kind of delighted to be part of it, actually. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Gold Coast, uh, uh, it's sort of a different perspective on filmmaking in uh, Australia, really, to realise that we're part of the Asia-Pacific region, which yes. encompasses 78 countries. It's quite... A, it, it's amazing. And it's third of the earth and half of the world's films. I know. It's quite a stunning... Um, kind of celebration of, of cinema from those different creative and cultural voices. And it's the perfect place to be here, you know, with um, and so many filmmakers actually come here. But 
it's um, you're absolutely right. I, I didn't know those figures exactly, but that makes sense to me. And uh, it's very powerful, um, you know, cultural voice in terms of all the diverse parts of this region. And no, I'm, I think um, the Gold Coast should be really delighted to have these awards that have been going on for so many years here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, it co- it connects th- those awards. They they um, make it clear that one of their jobs is to actually connect this region to uh, other um, peak film organisations in Europe and uh, in other parts of the world, which is a conduit for filmmakers. That's right. Um, one of the big discussions that was had yesterday amongst a lot of the uh, emerging kind of producers and, and directors was how can we all work together? And it's something that European cinema has been very good at for, gosh, 50 years, 60 years, which is how to, to create co-productions between different countries and something that Australia really can work on and that the um, Asia-Pacific Screen Awards helps with by bringing people here. And, of course, what happens then is you have these incredible stories which are cross-cultural, which, as we know, um, Australia is such a rich and diverse um, culture of many, many people that have come here, and so our stories are many and varied, and I think these kind of relationships allow our cinema to become richer with the... the um, the collaborations that happen between different countries. So you're absolutely right. It's it's such a strong part of what happens here is that you get people coming together who can then work together. And I think that uh, our industry would only be richer for that. Blue Back is a very interesting film because it's actually quite local to Western Australia. It's based on a Tim Winton novel. Uh, and there's so many elements to it, which is so uh, seductive because it's about... Uh, uh, the sea, the culture uh, along the sea, and it's also about intergenerational connections to land, uh, bringing in First Nations as well as a particular fa- a family of women. It, it's it's quite a fascinating film, in fact. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm really delighted by the life the film is having and, of course, being nominated is a real, um, you know, a special thing for all of us who made that film, particularly in the youth film section here, which is really um, unique part of these awards that they celebrate films for young people. Uh, and, of course, the environmental questions that the film asks and explores are so fundamental, I guess, to the big questions for all of us right now about our oceans and how important it is that they remain healthy and um you know, the impact of climate change and, you know, depletion of fishing stocks and, there, you know, a lot of these themes that Tim Winton deals with in his other work as well is, um, you know, really uh, important questions that the film poses. So, yeah, no, we're, we're delighted that, um, that we're here to celebrate that film amongst some pretty awesome other films. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. That's what I, it leads us to. I mean, you've got great actors in your, your film, really well-known people like uh, Mio. Yeah, she's great. Wasikowska. Yeah, she's Wasikowska. And Radna yeah. Mitchell and Eric Banner. Yeah. And, of course, the big fish, the groper. <laughs> yes, our <laughs> but, puppet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which but, is actually um, being celebrated uh, at the moment down at the Australian Maritime Museum in Sydney. If anyone's ever passing through Sydney, they should pop in. They've, they've actually got the puppet on display. 
and all of this um, information about how the puppet was used. And because I didn't do it with VFX, I did. I created this incredible blue globe with a puppet. And um, so yeah, I love that it's now being exhibited. I think the exhibition will probably tour around Australia too, which is great. I have to say that 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 um, exhibition space in Sydney is uh, spectacular. It's also very um, uh, innovative, like clever. Uh, the very fact that they think that that was worthwhile as an exhibition piece and that they were astute enough to get it is great, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And they're, you know, an amazing team there at the Australian Maritime Museum who have been doing great work in lots of areas of, um, you know, of more broader than you would just assume for a maritime museum. I think people go there because they like seeing the boats and, you know, you kind of learn about, the physical way that we navigate and, and, and how Indigenous people navigate it too is a great exhibition on that. But they're also doing a lot of um, work in the marine biology space too, which is really important. Yeah, they're very clever. Um, recommended, no. highly recommended. But um, <laughs> yeah, <same. laughs> getting back to the um, the films, I, one of the things about these particular awards, the APSA awards, is that I always discover, I mean, I always think that I see quite a few films because, you know, I do reviews, I do a whole range of things. But I always think, I'm always blown away by the by the amazing amount of films that are up for awards which will be amazing films and like you're up against a film from Kazakhstan uh and some films and you this points to what you were saying before which is uh that they make collaborations with other countries to make films so a house in Jerusalem uh it's credited with Palestine United Kingdom Qatar Netherlands and German money, right? And then I Monster. Know, it's amazing. Yeah, Monster's got Kabutsu and Japan. I don't even know where Kabutsu is. And um, Tiger Stripes, Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore, France, Germany, Netherlands, Indonesia, Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I actually love it. I think in creative endeavours, collaborating with people from other parts of the world with different points of view just makes our work richer and uh, it speaks of stories that are very often culturally specific to places but universal in the deep themes. I think we, we kind of know at this moment in history that, you know, these deep humanist themes about how we can live, you know, and that we all share. So, and I like hyper-specific hyper cultural cinema, um, that, but that also speaks of universal things. Um, a common humanity that we share as we navigate our time. And I, and I think that this festival just celebrates that. I mean, those films are all highly lauded, highly exceptional works of cinema made by great filmmaking teams. And, and I love that they've got so many partners. I think Australian cinema can really learn from it. I think we, we, we don't do it as well. Um, and uh, there's an amazing team actually working at Screen Australia that run the co-production unit and they're really exceptional champions of this so I think for up-and-coming filmmakers it's worth looking into how to work with other companies. Music from the wetlands on the banks of the Yarra River in Elfington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. 
Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kutcher Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats. Food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elfington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it. More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and that uh, interview I did with uh, Robert uh, Connolly about the uh, Asia Pacific Screen Awards, uh, the the extended version of it will be on the uh, podcast so you'll get more pearls of wisdom. Uh, You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to move on to a a few pieces that I collected from the excuse me, the uh, Economic and Social Outlook Conference on Thursday. The first is uh, from Ms. Gina Kazgoblikian Gottlieb, Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. You probably didn't know that she is, but this is what she had to say about the um, Qantas litigation and uh, uh, just before she was about to leave the stage. Good. Thank you for that very comprehensive uh, um, speech about all the work that the ACCC is doing. The one topic you didn't mention, which I'm sure everybody is wondering about, is Qantas. Mm-hmm. Qantas has recently filed its defence in the Ghost Flights case saying that it doesn't sell tickets to flights, it sells a bundle of rights. What's your response to that? As our media release at the time indicated, (laughs) but I I, I will, it it does actually apply an answer to this question, but I am being respectful to the court where the case is. Our case does not involve an alleged breach in relation to the actual decision about cancellation or whether Qantas had the contractual capacity to do so in the print that maybe some of you read in relation to your ticket. What our allegations relate to and our case relates to is the representations that Qantas made to customers in the sale of the tickets and its conduct after it had cancelled the flights in view of those representations. This includes by advertising sale tickets for more than 8,000 flights that it had already decided to cancel and had not removed from sale, and by failing to notify existing ticket holders on more than 10,000 flights that their flights had been cancelled for an average of over two weeks, and in some cases for up to 48 days, which impedes consumers' ability to obtain alternative flights at the time that they chose and needed to fly, and also to pay more for obtaining alternative flights. Uh, Unfortunately, because the matter is now before the federal court, it's not appropriate for me to go into that in more detail. But Uh, but are you you going to push this all the way? Are you interested in settling with Qantas? Uh, We are pursuing this matter in the court. Uh, We took it in a defined and strong way and we will continue to proceed in that manner. Do you understand why Australians are so angry with Qantas? We've got 48 seconds left. (laughs) One of the aspects we've been trying to achieve through this action and through other actions against Airbnb, a range of them, is that consumers are entitled to be delivered the services 
in accordance with the terms that are represented to them. And we think that this sets, importantly, high standards of customer service in order to enable informed and competent consumers making decisions in their personal interest and in their economic interest. She's a pro. Thank you so much, Gina Gascoglid. Yep, go Gina Gascoglid. She's the chair of the Australian Commission uh, and uh, Competition and Consumer Commission. So she was talking about... Uh, their uh, litigation against Qantas and the uh, ghost flights. I never, I didn't realise there were so many of them. It's amazing. Uh, I don't know why they thought they could get away with it. Uh, further to the Economic and Social Outlook Conference on Thursday uh, was this piece that because uh, the uh, Prime Minister dropped in and uh, did the speech keynote speech while people were having lunch. Um, and uh, then he did this informal style chat. And uh, these are the two pieces that he had to say what are that are of interest uh, about Gaza and about China, because, of course, he was just packing his bags to go to China. The war in the Middle East, you stood next to Joe Biden last week and overnight President Biden has indicated that he believes Israel should uh, now consider a ceasefire for humanitarian reasons. I understand you spoke to Benjamin Netanyahu overnight. What's your view about whether it's now time for a ceasefire? Well, we said uh, a week ago that there was a need for a pause for humanitarian concerns. Um, the and, and that remains our position. Uh, on the uh, 7th of October, I think people witnessed uh, a terrorist act uh, that shocked the world. And Israel has a right to defend itself, but how it defends itself matters as well. It must comply uh, with international law, including international law and the, the, the rules of war, and it must, is obligated, to do all that it can uh, to ensure that uh, innocent civilians uh, are not paying the price of Hamas's atrocities. And it has a responsibility uh, to do that. Uh, we've consistently said that's the case. And what, what we're witnessing is, as a result of uh, Hamas's actions uh, have hurt uh, and, and resulted in devastating uh, loss of life of Israelis and the hostage situation uh, needs to be resolved. They should be released unconditionally. Uh, but we've also seen uh, an enormous loss of Palestinian life. And my view is that every life matters. Every innocent life matters, whether it's Israeli or Palestinian. That's something that President Biden and I both spoke about uh, when I was at the White House. And it's something that uh, I believe uh, is, is absolutely critical. Uh, it is critical as well that this war does not expand into other theatres. The consequences of that for Israel's security are dire. And uh, Israel needs to uh, recognise that in the way that it conducts itself. Uh, because the images that have been seen of the refugee camp 
quite rightly, uh, will cause enormous, enormous concern uh, around the world. Do you believe Israel has already overstepped the mark? I, th I think that every effort has to be made to ensure that innocent civilians are, uh, are protected to every extent possible. I understand it is very difficult because of the way that Hamas operates uh, with uh, the, uh, the use of civilian infrastructure being mixed with what is effectively military infrastructure. Uh, the use of tunnels, etc., makes this a diabolical situation. Uh, but every single effort has to be made. Uh, this uh, is, I think, that the civilian toll is quite rightly uh, causing enormous concern uh, around the world and you know, from the Australian government's uh, position, uh, every Palestinian life matters, like every Israeli life matters. You know, we need to, you know, go to the next step. President Biden said this uh, standing next to me uh, last week. You know, you, you need to have uh, work towards a two-state solution. My government is to support two states, Israelis and Palestinians living in peace and security next to each other. It's hard to envisage how Hamas could possibly play a role in that, given their ideological position. Uh, but there is, there is no room uh, for uh, hatred of any form, uh, whether it be anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Uh, these issues are, are not simple. Uh, they require you know, the opposition sometimes that's there for any nuance. Uh, people are quite rightly traumatised. I met with people yesterday afternoon who have lost family members in Gaza. They are quite right to be traumatised and want their government to speak up for them just as their government has spoken up for the loss of Israeli life and for the families concerned about hostages and and uh, the, the, the consequences of Hamas's atrocities. We've done a lot of reporting about um, claims that anti-Semitism is on the rise this morning. We've reported that there are um, Jewish families who are reluctant to allow their children to wear their school uniforms on the bus on the way to and from school. There are a lot of Jewish Australians who really do fear that their, their own safety here is in danger. What's your message to them? That their government stands with them uh, we are concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, which has been on the rise, and uh, we provided uh, money uh, for security in Jewish schools and Jewish institutions, synagogues, but we've also provided money for uh, the Islamic community and the Palestinian community. There are women, very regularly, who get abused, who get vilified because they're wearing a hijab in this country as well. And uh, these forms of, of, uh, of hatred are completely uh, unacceptable. And uh, I've spoken to um, members of, uh, of the community. We need, to, we need to make sure as well in uh, 
the comments that are made, and politicians have a role in this, as uh, the Director-General of OGO, Mike Burgess, has said very clearly and explicitly, have a role in, they can either lower temperature or increase temperature. There are real work world consequences for real people with temperature rising, and I think the media and politicians and everyone has a really important role to play in showing respect, in showing understanding of the hurt that people are feeling, who, particularly those who have that uh, direct engagement with family and friends and connections in the Middle East. This is a really difficult time. One of, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm so saddened by is on the Thursday before, so two days before October 7, I hosted, uh, or I attended, I wasn't the host, it was hosted by the Anglican Church uh, in Sydney, a meeting uh, that uh, was about the, the voice with all of the faith leaders uh, supporting constitutional recognition uh, for First Nations people. And you had uh, Sheikh Shadi, uh, El Suleiman, the head of the National Imams Council. You had uh, the uh, Rabbi uh, Ben Elton from uh, the Sydney Synagogue. You had uh, the Bishop of pa Catholic Bishop of Parramatta. You had the Primate of the Anglican Church. You had the head of the Hindu Council. You had the head of the Buddhist Council. You had uh, a Maronite Bishop, uh, Melkite, you had uh, religions that some people here might know exists, uh, all represented there. And it was the best of Australia. I was so proud. And they were all there, all recognising the great privilege we have of sharing this continent with the oldest continuous culture on earth and declaring that that respect should be given uh, through constitutional acknowledgement they were here for, you know, a few thousand years, give or take 60,000, uh, before 1788. It was such a positive moment. And two days later, you, you, you had that, and, and now you have a, a, an outbreak of, of division. To me, my role is just that, to bring people together, to lift the nation up, to look for something that's better. And I know that there's some debate about that, but I make no apologies for looking for something better for our nation uh, because that's what we need to do. You're about to go to China to meet with President Xi. Um, you've had some big wins wine and barley, on wine and barley in particular. We've seen the release of Chiang Lei. Um, however, Joe Biden did also warn you not to trust China fully. How do you navigate this new period of normalisation, particularly in a context when Australian journalists still have not been allowed to return to China to report on what's going on? Uh, there was a, a journalist delegation there last week. And one of the things that uh, you know, they noted, I spoke to one of them today, was that uh, there hasn't been visas granted for journalists to report. And in my mind, that's an example of something that is in Australia's interest, but in China's interest as well. My, my whole point here is that dialogue builds understanding and it's always a good thing. Uh, whether that brings agreement or disagreement 
it brings understanding of what the basis of it is. Uh, so I'm very pleased uh, to take up the invitation uh, to visit Shanghai and Beijing uh, next week. Um, there, is, there are differences between our country. Though we have different political systems, we have different values. Uh, we need to talk openly and respectfully about that. We need to look for areas where we cooperate, where we can disagree, where we must, uh, but engage in our national interests. And I said in the speech there that that our our dealing of this is patient, calibrated, and deliberate. So a really conscious way forward. But one thing always looking at, what's Australia's national interest? Not what's the political hit that we can get? What's the wedge that we can do for domestic political purposes? That's my approach to all of our international engagement. I sincerely believe it is in our interests. Uh, and uh, the breakthroughs that have happened, you know, barley's worth 900 mil, Wine's worth 1.2 billion. This is jobs. The, the trade with China is more than the combination of our exports, more than the combination of Japan, South Korea and the United States. This is a relationship that matters, but it also matters on other areas as well. It's important that uh, we put forward Australia's positions on human rights, on uh, our democratic values that we have, and certainly the United States and President Biden was very welcoming of the fact that I'm visiting and President Xi and, and uh, President Biden and indeed myself will be together at the APEC conference in just a few weeks' time in San Francisco. I think that is a good thing uh, that President Xi has taken up that invitation to visit and that there'll be that face-to-face uh, that -face dialogue uh, between what are uh, the world's two major powers. Uh, that doesn't change. Uh, the way that we deal with America is different, though, from the way that we deal with China. Uh, the United States is our ally. Uh, is, uh, I have a very warm relationship uh, with President Biden. Um, the nature of the, the interactions uh, in China will, will obviously be different to that, and it's right to point it out. Uh, but it's wrong to therefore say, oh, well, don't bother. I think it is important.
You with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was the wonderful C.W. Stone King, and Mama Got the Blues, yes. And in the studio, we have live guests, which is very exciting. We've got Riley Longworth and Shane Palmer, and they're putting on a show down at uh, the Butterfly Club, uh, You Can't Escape an Aussie Boy. Hello, Riley. Hello, Shane. How are you? Very well, thank you, Annie. Yeah, good, good morning. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, tell us about the show. Uh, so You Can't Escape an Aussie Boy is a three-man play uh, that follows the journey of Dan, Stephen and Tim, uh, three lovable but short-sighted knuckleheads who kind of fall into uh, taking over their suburban football club uh, on the promise of making it great again. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we were talking before that we started having a chat that uh, a lot of the themes of... Uh, uh, manipulation and uh, a wish fulfillment uh, are actually also involved in your play. Massively so, yeah. It's um, I've been following very, uh, very closely over the last couple of years or so that the uh, capacity people have to get behind a movement where they're able to kind of throw their hands up and be like, "Oh, good, it's all going to be fine." It's all going to be wonderful. I don't have to do anything. I just have to back the people with the loudest voice here who are promising the world. But don't worry about the details of it. It'll, it'll all be fine. Just, just just, don't worry about that. We'll be great again kind of thing. And then they're off. Yeah, yeah. It's the classic con. Or the classic con is that you offer the people exactly what they want. Totally. Yeah. And again, more than happy to sort of buy in regardless of experience or actual plan or tangible solutions yeah. or path down the road. Yeah. It's like there was a poster that used to be on the walls around Melbourne that hope is not a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> hope is not a plan. So uh, tell us about, because you wrote it, Shane. I did, yeah. So I wrote it originally back in 2019 uh, after I got back from touring a solo show uh, to Edinburgh. Um pieced it together pretty quickly back then and then we were set to go on stage again at the Butterfly Club in March 2020 and of course nothing went on stage in March 2020 around the world and so I got bumped back and bumped back and bumped back and then I got back from a short stint in Vancouver uh, around Easter this year caught up with Riley and another mate and said what are you doing later this year so doing nothing (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do a show yeah Sounds like a lark. And that was about oh, six pints of Guinness in and then sort of woke up the next morning and like, ooh, yeah, this could actually work. And so we um, uh, revised the script uh, structurally and story-wise, uh, kicked in a third character, which is good because now I've got more people to mess around with on stage with, and um, pulled it in. It's, it's funny kind of updating the... Um, 
not quite the message of the story. Well, it's sort of a ser- satire, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So it, it's a lot less angry than what the script was a few years ago. Um, well, that's interesting. What did you discover? What What, what are your um, key finds from the, uh, trying to investigate why people can be so flim-flammed and perhaps also give up their power? Um, I think people love the idea of the myth. And if you spin a good enough story with enough conviction, uh, it just it gets people on board kind of thing. It's a little bit almost like the Pied Piper. You play the right tune and people are sort of, they'll, they'll bob along to do, a degree. Do, do you choose to look at the uh, motivations of the characters who decide to flim-flam people? Definitely, yeah. It's... Um, it's a fascinating little balance of trying to get people, especially the audience, to be like, all right, why are we rooting for these guys to succeed? Uh, oh, so of... you make the audience flim-flammed as well? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's so Absolutely. cute. Absolutely. They're, they're kind of, they're really yeah, sort of in a rut at first and there's no sort of um, bearing or sense of belonging for them in their environment until they figure out this one thing that they could be really good at. Probably might not be. There's no evidence to support it, but it's like, yeah, why not? And then people get. It was an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Opportunism. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, Riley, what? How did you handle uh, three people uh, dealing with this topic? Uh, I think I I come from more of a film and TV sort of background, um, and I'm not a huge fan of live theatre. So most of. Oh really? No, not really. So most of my directing is more just like how can we lampoon like I hate monologues at the start of shows so how can we just turn that into a joke so I think like on the satire level I've been trying to sort of like come at it as if the whole thing is a scam yeah and so that's kind of been the most fun for me is just like trying to find exactly where I can sort of layer in jokes and kind of where people expect theater to take you and then just turn that into a, a giant farce um Oh, that's interesting. So this is a fusing of a theatrical sort of normalcy and why you were brought in is to actually um, fuse it with uh, uh, a contemporary uh, screen time um, sensibility. Yeah, I think so. And there was, I remember like reading it at the start and there was a lot more Get out, no, cut, fine. Uh, well, yeah. It, <laughs> was, it takes too long. <laughs> I'm <like>, bored. <laughs> <laughs> There's a way it could have been snappier, I think, from the start, and that's what I think we found. And because you rewrote it, I think you did like, after we agreed to do it, you did like four or five drafts, like back to back to back. Um, and I think, yeah, it's starting to shine because the seriousness that most of these topics usually come with is something we've kind of put aside. And so we've decided because it's a farce, it's way funnier as a result of that. And I think it plays into sort of those broader themes of sort of like, you know, we were talking about it just before of just because these people wear the suits and they say all the things on the news, it doesn't mean they're any smarter than me. And that's kind of been the learning point of the last six, seven years of Aussie and American politics is you see these guys come out and they start running the country and you're like, hang on, I think he's an idiot. And then it slowly, <laughs> over years, it just unravels and then you find out they are an idiot. <laughs> and that's kind of fun. And I think that's what we play with as well. It's like you've got a character who you set up as we think is going to be that fool, but then you realise the real fool is someone else who was doing the dance a little better at the start. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Uh, and why have you decided to, decided to put it into a footy club? Um, 
because it's not really been done. Aside from Graham Kennedy's film, The Club, which came out in the 70s and I have still not oh, seen it. Oh, there was yet. one um, <laughs> thing Deliberately. Uh, Hopwood made a film, um, uh, made a play. There was a play I saw a while uh, when I was really young. Um, an actor, his surname's Hopgood. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. But it, it's it's so largely kind of unexplored, but such a, an instantly high point of drama, I find, that you get these two worlds that kind of almost run parallel to each other and should intersect a lot more because they're kind of perfectly complementary, um, where the football club becomes the entire universe for the people involved in it. Um, so we've set it at a fictional suburban one that could be sort of somewhere in Melbourne, anywhere. Um, and Do you have personal experience of being in that sort of framework? Because I come from a country town and uh, 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 not my family, but I mean, sport is more important than life itself. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I grew up in a country town as well where the footy club was the centre of the universe for everything. That if even down to sort of if you were starting a small business, you were either part of the uh, the Lions group, the Masons, or you're in the footy club. Otherwise, you just wouldn't exist. That's um, right. And so there was... Uh, it's an identity issue. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's also, a uh, what do you call it? It's almost like a displacement behaviour because it means that you don't have to actually own up to being yourself. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You can put on the uniform, yeah. And then you're just one of the boys and then it's all... Uh, there's a, a big free pass that kind of um, aligns with that for some reason. So we're kind of exploring a bit of that as well. And kind yeah, of like, yeah. what, why? It's a bit like an army. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a weird power that goes with either that navy blue suit and the mortar hat or some kind of uniform that it's a big weird tick for, oh, that, no, but it's totally fine because he's the captain. So... Well, we're not going to stop him. Like, he's, you know, we're just pushing under the rug kind of thing. And yeah. I, th- I think that will also transfer overseas quite a lot as well. There's oh, yeah. a lot of... Like, it's human behaviours. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Oh, human behaviours in the Western context, probably. Definitely, yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I'm sh- I mean, I don't mean that there wouldn't be uh, variations in on the same theme in other cultures, but definitely not. We, we are really far down the line of uh, being... Um, uh, uniformed. I mean, we do it from the time. That's why everybody's. You go to school, and this is mm. what you do. Like when you're a kid, a little kid, and then they go to school. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing that school teaches you is that you know there's an institution that will take out all of the guesswork of being social. I don't have to go and put myself out on the line as a school kid because there's other kids who are doing the same thing, and they're like, well, I guess we'll be friends. And I think that's what a footy club can do for people as well is that kind of gives you that sense of, like, not just community, but also, like, friends, like, sincere friends. Um, and I think that's, as well, quite a fun line to blur with the the play. Um, just seeing these guys sort of, like, talking about things, which, ultimately, they're just talking about their mates, but they sort of, like, are stepping back to talk about it as, like, no, it's all power plays and it's political but it's really not because they're just <laughs> talking about their friends yeah 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 that's right i mean it's quite fascinating it must have been an interesting journey putting the play together yeah definitely um and especially from the uh the kind of perspective of they're going to come in they're going to completely uh revolutionize this institution of the local sort of community and um redo it but we're going to do it better and yeah. we're going to you know, we're actually going to win this time and we're going to put the money in the right direction and put the right people in place. And then as soon as 
without spoiling anything, but when the temptation for the darker path makes itself available, you see how easy it is to slip down that road. Yeah. I would say, yeah. Um, and the the cyclical nature of the boys club is, it's just fascinating to explore. Um, yeah. And again, treading that line between not making them um, almost uh, classic Disney level, sort of like Bond villain kind of characters. Like, well, they're not. They're just ordinary people doing bad things. Definitely, yeah. Basically. <laughs> And that's why it works as satire. Right? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Drawing across the curtain. And the beauty of this, having you in, is that we get to offer two double passes, don't we? We certainly do, yes. Yes, yes. And we first we should tell them when it's on. Uh, so the show is on at the Butterfly Club on uh, Carson Place in the city uh, from November the 13th until November the 18th. And all shows are at 7 o'clock. Yeah. Perfect. So if you want a double pass, we've got two. You can give me a call after nine, between nine and 9.30, 94198377. Don't ring after 9.30 because I won't be here. So there. And thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much Thanks for having so us. Much. Appreciate it. A week solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when... Let's get the genuinely serious out of the way. We are seeing genocide being perpetrated behind the excuse that civilians are being used as cover, are therefore legitimate targets, while the long discredited line about caring about civilian deaths is repeated ad infinitum. Now, a week when any thoughts that the law is an ass were expunged in a matter brought by the Environment Council of Central Queensland when the Federal Court Beak ruled that the Minister for the Environment in considering approvals for coal and gas projects does not have to take into account, wait for this, take into account the environment. Let's repeat that. The Environment Minister in considering new fossils and fossil expansions does not have to consider the environment. That, then why the hell is she called the Environment Minister? Let's, let's get the nomenclature right. The Minister for Fossil Approvals. The council said it was bitterly disappointed after it had argued the minister must consider the climate impacts of fossils. I am alarmed that under our law, it is somehow not the job of the Environment Minister to protect the environment, the council's Christine Carlyle understated. The Minister, Tania Plebzik and Stickett, in approving one coal mine expansion, said she was not satisfied it was likely to result in a net increase to greenhouse gas emissions. Look, we know she's the Minister and we're the mere plebs in Plebzik and Stickett, but, 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 but which bit of coal mining and the burning of that coal would not cause a net increase in pollution? God, imagine if the law was an ass. I know it'll come as a hell of a surprise, but the law he's on a ruled on was introduced in 1999 by former caring business class party big supremo little Johnny Howhart. Not that we'd suggest for one moment little Johnny's so-called Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act was designed to achieve exactly the opposite. Anyway, the current government is moving to overhaul environmental laws, and here's the cheery bit. It wants to address caring business class demands to streamline major project approvals, to, to make it even easier. 
thank goodness we've got a socialist government which takes climate change seriously, if there is such a thing. And it's all working so well. Two Queensland businessmen have become the beneficiaries of hundreds of millions of dollars in dividends paid by their private coal operations, the Trubal Aussie Capitalist Review boasted proudly this week. But there was a negative. One of the billionaires, Sam Chong, real name, highlighted real greed. The Queensland government has unfairly targeted the coal industry by raising royalties, he complained. We're basically funding the Queensland government. Poor dears. And not surprisingly, he added, he does not believe in climate change and hopes to expand his coal investments. Well, he would, wouldn't he? There's hundreds of millions of dollars in not believing in climate change, and he's guaranteed any new projects will be approved by Tania because she doesn't have to consider what he knows doesn't exist anyway. But uh, do spare a thought for poor Gina. Her hand cock up the environment prospecting suffered a tragic profit downturn from $5.8 billion to a mere $5.04 billion. Our hearts go out to her. Any wonder she so opposes government attempts to tax the resource industry. Nonetheless, a major conversion on the road too. Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect lackey bolt through the head has seen the light. This week, he attacked developments that would destroy the environment, supporting a group opposing a proposal in an area adjacent to World Heritage-listed rainforest, another near the beautiful coastal outcrop called the Nut, yet another in state forests in the Central Highlands and off the coast above Newcastle. Yes, bolt through the head supports protesters against these proposals which happen to be turbines for wind power. The mad idea of saving the planet by destroying it, he saged. So, renewable energy is a threat to the environment, but the environmental convert and his idol, Lord Rupert, know there is no threat by mining and burning fossils in deep-sea seismic testing, in gas pipelines across the ocean, deep-sea mining, mining anywhere. All no threat whatever. Oh, yes, pure logic, the old bolt through. In this cup week, we've got a safe bet we can back all day. Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust, whose expert advice is we need lots more unemployed for the um, good of the economy, told us renters are better off now than they were two years ago. Either the mind boggles at what life for renters must have been like two years ago, or, and here's where we can bet on a certainty, or it's long odds on, Michelle is not a renter. And it's just as big a certainty that Michelle won't be taking her own advice and heading off to join the queue down at the doll office. Join those who are starving for their own good, for the good of the economy, good of the country, which is the same thing. Also caring only for the good of the country, but no need to say it, we all know it, caring employers. We've been discussing their oh-so-genuine concern that having to pay workers the same pay for the same work would destroy their, or sorry, our economy, that having to employ casuals who are not casuals as full-time employees would further destroy the economy, that making wage theft 
well, we know there's no such thing. Inadvertent underpayment are criminal offence, penalising caring employers and boardrooms for their understandable inability to read an award. Yes, would destroy the economy and thus the government has made a few changes to the proposed legislation to appease these concerns and would we believe the changes caring employers have exploded will destroy the economy? And as usual, not for some selfish reasons like greed and exploitation, but because they would be bad for workers. For instance, employers set an alteration to the casual full-time dichotomy that workers not receive back pay for when they should have been full-time would hurt those workers. Well, the week that was has a simple solution. Put the condition back. Pay them. But, but hang on. That's what caring employers were complaining about before they were complaining about not having to pay them. It's also complicated, isn't it? If, if the changes, as the AC2U says, are modest, the caring employers and their workforces would be intrigued to know what unions would see as their real demands. Our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Troublawasi Industry Profits Group spoke for those who care. Um, they are, he warned, a radical makeover of the workplace relations system, breathtakingly naive. Innes was so concerned. Piling new costs and complexity onto caring employers will do anything except create secure new jobs. And there it is in a nutshell. All caring employers care about creating secure new jobs which they can't do if they're constantly being threatened with barriers to secure new jobs like wages and conditions. A, quote, rape culture activist, Chanel Contos, told the National Press Club Wednesday the majority of rapists in Troublewasi are well-educated young men from good family homes, entitled opportunists, she called them giving even more credence, more weight to caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer's call, totally sincere, nothing to do with racism call for a His Most Gracious Majesty's commission into terrenilious non-land, non-people sexual carryings-on. Well, at least her revelation lets, lets Constable Duffer off the hook. Well-educated, she said. That rules him out. As a by-the-by, we recall when he became caring business class party supremo, we were told we would see his soft, gentle, caring side. Imagine what his non-soft, non-gentle, non-caring side must be like. Speaking of great minds, sure we all appreciate the way teleads appeal to the highest common intelligence denominator like that one where the woman leaving the supermarket forgot to pick up the herring paste. Go get that herring paste, the checkout bloke says. Now, don't know what he's got against her, why he wants to destroy her health, because apart from being almost all salt, it's long odds the herring paste ever being anywhere near anything that might have lived in the ocean. The airline, which used to be our airline, has come up with a watertight defence to these charges that it flogged tickets for non-flights, or more correctly, for flights that had already been cancelled. See, it explained when people who think they, when they buy a ticket for a flight, they are buying a ticket for a flight, well, they're wrong. They're not buying a ticket for a flight, but are buying, quote, a bundle of rights. 
And for this, the regulator wants to find them trillions. It's simple, really. We turn up at the airport with our bundle of rights, survey the aircraft on the tarmac, decide which one we like the look of, and up, up and away to some mystery destination, Potluck Airlines. When naive customers think they have bought a ticket to wherever they want to go, the airline which used to be hasn't outlined just what rights we buy in our bundle of rights, like, say, the right to be ripped off. I'm sure we can't see any holes in that defence. So finally, could it be that Potluck Airlines is simply adding to a bundle of wrongs? Good morning. And that was, of course, This Is The Week That Was, which is a fantastic return to form by Kevin. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and I'll just, uh, I have a listener who uh, informed me that the play that I was searching for uh, was And The Big Men Fly, and it was written by Alan Hopgood. So thank you very much for that piece of information. It means that I don't have to worry about it. Uh, The double passes passes to uh, You Can't Escape an Aussie Boy, uh, they're offered for Tuesday the 14th of November at 7pm at the Butterfly Club, which is at Carson's place in the city and uh, you need to give us a call on 94198377 between 9 and 9.30 this morning to be uh, in the running for those double passes on the 14th of November. That's a Tuesday. Now this was a busy week and um, the uh, RAFU people uh Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, as you probably are aware, have been uh, pushing for safer uh, environment in their work and uh, better paying conditions at uh, the two major uh, supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths, who have been recalcitrant, who refuse to actually speak in to the union in good faith and uh, are just uh, uh, trying to... Uh, gouge as much money as they can without taking any responsibility for their workforce. Now, um, there was a a rally outside or a gathering outside the uh, Melbourne uh, Convention Centre on Friday, yesterday uh, in the morning, uh, to greet the uh, members of the AGM, Coles AGM, uh, Coles is probably, if you if it was a horse race, Coles is just a little bit ahead in uh, the uh, terrible stakes in the supermarket uh, behaviours towards their workers, but there's not much in it. Uh, so this is what uh, Josh Cullinan, the secretary of uh, the of RAFU, had to say before the majority of people turned up on Friday morning. Okay, so. Uh we're outside uh, the um, convention centre, Jess Shed, uh, here in Melbourne, and I'm talking to Josh Cullinan from RAFU. What's going on? Uh, well, today we're down here. It's the Coles AGM inside, and uh, we're down here with a rally of both workers um, represented by RAFU, um, so rallying here about worker exploitation by Coles, as well as communities out today as well, rallying against the, the price gouging that Coles has been inflicting on our community now for years. Yeah, okay, and so you're taking it to the shareholders? That's right, that's right. We couldn't give up the opportunity to come down and call out these shareholders that 
you know, profiteered right through the pandemic when Coles workers were getting sick and their families were getting sick and they made billions off their backs while they were getting sick. And now not treating them as the essential worker heroes they were, paying them poverty wages and continuing to make a buck. So these shareholders need to hold this organisation responsible and make sure that they start paying workers a living wage, providing safe workplaces, giving secure jobs and ending the price gouging that's being inflicted on all of us. And as we've had pointed out, unsafe workplaces. Absolutely. These workplaces at Coles are amongst the least safe now in Australia. You know, we see workers getting injured every day, both getting injured because of the work practices to getting injured because offenders are coming through these shops. And we've got this ridiculous situation at Coles where they're starting to put wheel locks and gates on all of their self-checkouts so that they're going to be locking in offenders trying to steal. They're going to be locking them in with workers, young workers, with families, with mums and dads and kids. And it's just going to lead to more carnage. And, this, and it's all in pursuit of a buck. And the coal shareholders need to hold this company responsible because it's on them, you know, the blood of the next worker or consumer or customer that gets assaulted or threatened or intimidated or harassed. It's on every one of them for not doing enough. This uh, policing uh, in uh, um, shops, uh, effectively, is, is a real sign of class warfare, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's absolutely, you know, back in the, um, back in the days when this, country was colonised and caused such harm and hurt to so many First Nations people, but many of those first colonisers were here because they'd stolen bread to feed their families. Now we've got a situation where Coles is trying to clamp down on anyone who would dare take a litre of milk or a loaf of bread and try and get through that door. Now obviously our members shouldn't be stopping anyone from doing that. You know, that's, that's not their job. But Coles is making it their job by putting these wheel locks on, by putting these gates in place. And we've got this ridiculous situation we've exposed now this week where Coles is doing bad checks on all of its own staff. Bad checks because they know that their workers are paid poverty wages and can't afford the groceries they sell. You know, our members aren't stealing, but that's the way Coles looks at them. It looks at them as potential thieves rather than the thieves that are running this company and making billions off the back of you know, these poor workers and our poor community that needs a great deal more from Coles. I must say, as a, a shopper, I don't go to supermarkets very often, but when I do, I never use the self-serve uh, offloading the job uh, to the customer. What's that all about? Well, I mean, there's lots of different views on this. You know, many of our, many of our members actually don't mind working in those self-serve checkouts. You know, who can blame them when some old bloke comes through and tells the young woman to smile? at a checkout, you know, and when a worker's trapped in a checkout and doesn't know if someone's going to throw a punch or spit on them. So being in a self-serve checkout, often it just gives you a bit more space and a bit more freedom. Um, so our members are, you know, they don't necessarily see it as the ends of things. Um, but look, these companies, they will make a buck wherever they can. If they can get customers to do some of the work themselves, they will, they will make a buck there. And so there's never enough checkouts open. It's a huge issue in all of our stores. So whatever with the self-checkout, let's get more checkouts open. Let's get more staff into these stores. Let's pay them living wages, give them safe jobs, and make sure that they're in meaningful, ongoing employment with enough hours to feed their families and put a roof over their heads. Now, you said that uh, there's a coalition, really, outside here because people, community members, are going to come and talk about price gouging. That's right, that's right. So we're already down here. We're a bit early, but we've already got workers on strike here. Um, but we're going to be joined by a community coalition. 
the Greens have been doing some great work on this and calling it out. Labor will never call it out because they support the duopoly. So it's fantastic that the Greens are doing some leadership and there's other community activists coming down as well to help share this space and to call out the community price gouging. The Coles and Woolies and many other companies, but particularly Coles and Woolies, are notorious for. You know, they did a um, survey of uh, most trusted uh uh, organisations in the Australian community and a lot of people actually put down Woolies as a place where they trust. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly something that Woolies and Coles have put in a lot of effort over decades to build their goodwill and to build a perception that they're companies that can be trusted. They're destroying that at the moment. They're destroying that by price gouging and by making it unaffordable for families to be able to feed their kids. You know, we know that Domino's Pizza and Macca's is cheaper than putting fruit and veg on the table and decent quality foods. And this company, Coles and Woolies, but Coles in particular, is making it harder and harder for families to be able to get nutritious food and to be able to make sure that they're living a healthy life. Um, and so it's really disappointing that Coles and Woolies have destroyed their own goodwill, destroyed their own company names in pursuit of another buck. And it really says a lot about the people that are in charge of these companies at the moment. One thing, I, what do you feel about the ads that they have on TV where they actually use the workers to sell the company? I find that quite chilling. Well, you know, we're pretty sceptical of how many workers Coles and Woolies use. They certainly have people pretending to be workers. Um, Bunnings has always used, or for a long time has used workers in their, in their advertising, and we're concerned that they're not being paid properly under the uh, Media and Entertainment Arts Alliance structured wages and, that should be paid. But look, we're, we're very sceptical that Coles is, is using any workers um, that, are, that are actually working in shops because, you know, when I go into a shop and I talk to our members, none of them are smiling like those, those people in those ads. Those people in those ads are probably being paid a hell of a lot more than the 14 to $25 an hour that workers are being paid right now when they're serving in a coal shop. And when you talk about $14 an hour, you're talking about the young ones who pay the same rent, pay the same bills, but are being paid half the pay. Yeah, that's casual. They're getting paid much less than that as a, as a non-casual part-time worker when they're 14, 15, 16. Um, and look, absolutely, there. And, and also disabled workers. You know, Coles and Woolies use these ridiculous disabled rates where someone comes in and does an assessment and decides that because of an intellectual or a physical disability, they're only worth a percent of a full-time adult. That's abhorrent as well. But junior rates are abhorrent as well. We've got 16-year-olds who are abused at home and they have to move out, so they're living out of home, paying rent, paying food, getting paid 50%. You know, that's what Labor and Liberal teamed up to do to workers. And Coles and Woolies, they love every minute of it. You know, companies like Macca's and Kmart I was meeting with yesterday, they exploit it as well. They make hundreds of millions. Macca's makes $650 million a year off the back of, of junior rates. Companies like Coles make a couple of hundred million dollars a year off the back of junior rates. Don't pay one of those 18-year-olds any super eight that are under 18, any superannuation. These systems of exploitation, they just love. Yeah, yeah. Um outrageous. I mean, it's, it's legal uh, bastardry, really. But um, also, there are people who are on strike today, aren't they? Absolutely. We've got members already out down here on strike, and so we're striking right across Victoria for the whole day, um, and we're encouraging all our members that are in Melbourne, um, in the CBD, to get down here for, for this action. Um, and then across the rest of Australia, we're doing seven-minute stoppages, which Coles has lost its mind about. Can't figure out how to process a seven-minute deduction of a pay. And then, and then in a bizarre turn yesterday, have authorised all of those actions. 
So as far as we're concerned, every worker that's taking a seven-minute stoppage uh, across the rest of the country um, at 9am, at 2pm and at 8pm today um, should be paid uh, for their seven-minute stoppages, um, but uh, that just says how poor their systems are to ensure that they can comply with law. Um, but yeah, absolutely, down today, Coles workers are on strike for the day in Victoria and we're hoping there'll be a great turnout this morning as we take this action right up to these Coles shareholders. Uh, you know, it's a bit reminiscent of the minute silence. How did you get to the seven minutes? Well, look, there's a, the, the idea of it is a seven-minute stoppage costs these workers, because they're paid so little, costs these workers about three bucks. And so what we said was, well, let's inflict on management the obligation to identify who's doing it, uh, when they do it, make sure they do do it, and then actually deduct the seven minutes pay. And the, and the work associated with that is going to cost a hell of a lot more um, than our members going on strike. And so we decided that was a good way of impacting outside of Victoria because those workers obviously can't get down to the Coles AGM. Um, so that's why we decided on, on the seven minutes. A bit of bedevilment <laughs> that was uh, down outside uh, the uh, convention centre uh, in Melbourne uh, at the AGM, uh, Coles AGM, uh, RAFU and community members. And now we're going to go to a good news story, really. This is quite a staggering piece of news that uh, the New South Wales is to going to deprivatise prisons. This is a really big story. Uh, and uh, I had a the opportunity to chat to the president of uh, the uh, um, Public Service Association New South Wales, Nicole, Nicola Jess, about it. And thank you very much for taking my call. Um, can you introduce yourself to my listeners, please? Yeah, my name's Nicole Jess. I'm the president of the Public Service Association and I'm also a senior correctional officer uh, for correctional uh, services New South Wales. Now it's the most amazing news to hear that uh, the deprivatising prisons uh, has uh, now been on the agenda for the New South Wales government. I mean it is an extraordinary turnaround isn't it? It's an extraordinary turnaround. The Public Service Association has been advocating for 30 years now uh, since Juni was first built and made private um, it's great news about Juni. We still have some work to do with Parkley. That doesn't come about until I think it's about 2027. So we'll be strongly advocating for that to return to the public sector. Um, at, unfortunately, Clarence has a 20-year contract and that doesn't end until 2040. So I don't think this government has enough money to actually get that, get them out of that contract. So, um, But we will still be advocating until we can get rid of private prisons in New South Wales. There's some fundamental reasons for why this is a great victory. Uh, justice is being served, isn't it, for a start? Well, it certainly is. Um, we believe that there should, you know, the justice, justice system should have no privatisation in it whatsoever. The way that these companies make money is they do it by cutting staff wages and the amount of staff that we have in those facilities. So if you compare them between um, the privates and the publics, we have considerable amount of staff, more than what the private, the, the private sector do. And it is actually a risk to inmates and it's a risk to staff. But fundamentally, um, jails as well as uh, the courts are all part of a system 
that uh, the public, if you're going to put somebody in jail, then you should actually be the one that actually does the, takes the uh, moral responsibility, I, I, I believe, I'll have to say. Yeah, 100%. Um, I agree also, and that's the stance of the Public Service Association. Uh, we should not be profiting off crime. And if we're putting someone in jail based on um, what they've done out in the community, the public should be making sure that they manage that person and they manage that person with rehabilitation first and foremost, not profit for for companies outside of Australia. Because what's really going on when it becomes a profit motive is that, like you said, they are cutting corners. That, that's correct. They, if you look at Park Lee, who is the equivalent of the MRRC, which is a public-run um, facility, uh, there is considerable more staff that work in the MRRC. It's safer. The inmates, when they come back to the MRRC, they do things to actually come back there because they don't like to live in a, in a centre where their lives are put in jeopardy because there's not enough staff to help them if something happens. And staff, the Parkley Correctional Centre is the highest centre last year for staff assaults. And we have staff from that centre that's not coming back to work because of the assaults that have been, um, that have happened to them. And no one should have to go to work and be in increased danger. It's already a dangerous job and we should not be doing, they should not be put to work in a job that's already dangerous only and made more dangerous so outside people in outside outside of Australia can make more money. <laughs> well, you actually point that out, that uh, the, all the money is going out of the country and uh, boardrooms in New York, London and Singapore. That's correct, yeah. And, and I mean, if you have a look at just recently, um, the public sector received quite a... We got five point, uh, 4.5% increase in our wages this year, which was a fantastic compared to what we have previously. Um, but we had to, Parkley had to go on a considerable amount of strikes. I think they um, went on strike on three occasions um, because that company did not want to give them a fair and just pay rise. We are going through such high, uh, the cost of living is getting outrageous. And we've got these companies that are sending high profits back out of this country to um to, private, to shareholders outside of Australia and they don't want to give these people that go to work on a daily basis in an extremely dangerous job a fair and just pay rise. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? And, and then it comes to this uh, duty of care. I mean, there's duty of care to uh, the workers, of course, but then prisoners are actually in an invidious position in the sense that they're free. I mean, it's part of their sentence. They have no control over their lives, effectively. <laughs> so if the duty of care... Yeah. 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 And what we need to do is make sure that, they're, that they are getting the rehabilitation that they require, that there's not lockdowns because of staff shortages, that they're not put in situations where they're at risk because there's no staff to actually monitor what's happening in the wings and to make sure that they're safe. And we do have a lot of vulnerable inmates in custody. Um, and, you know, these private-run facilities are done with less staff, and, and that is a danger to not only correctional staff, but it's a danger to the non-custodial staff that go to work there every day. It's, it's a danger to the visitors that come in when there's less staff to monitor visitors. 
um, and it's a danger to the inmates. And they, they want to be able to go to work go and live in a, in a society, a jail is a little society, um, that's safe. Well, it's interesting too because um, you point out that it's a heavy cost to taxpayers. I mean, it's not actually cheap. It's not cheaper. No, it's not. It's not cheaper. They they get paid a considerable amount for having um, inmates in their care. They get paid per inmate per bed, so it's favourable to them to have as many inmates in their in their centre as possible. Um, and as I said, that money that they get, the profits that they get do not go back to the individuals that are putting their lives on the line every day. We have to fight for them to have fair and just wage increases. Um, it goes out to places like in boardrooms and to you know shareholders in New York, Singapore, London. It, it doesn't go into share, like it doesn't come back to New South Wales. Well, you know, the thing is that the whole thing is so anti-intuitive, you know, like ha having profit motive, having a private prison, uh, it takes away accountability. It takes away. It takes away um, uh, the idea that a prisoner is going to be there for a set amount of time because obviously it's worthwhile to have them there for longer. I mean, I'm not saying that that's what's. But you know, a sentence is being increased so that you can ensure that the profit motive is being um, caretaked. And unfortunately, what happens also is that we don't have the ability to see what's happening in these centres when they're privately run. We don't get to actually um, see whether or not, if they're not meeting their targets, their KPIs, we don't get to see if they're actually paying their, the fines um, because the more fines that they get, that's less profits. But we don't know whether that's actually happening and whether the government is holding them account to their contract. Um, you know, that's a concern for us. Everything is commercial confidence. Um, but we have proven when we when we tendered for John Maroney out at Windsor that the government can actually do it um, with a safe working profile for staff and inmates and we can do it we can do it just as well at, at a cheaper cost because we know how to we know how to run jails properly. Well tell me tell tell me something. Um how did you how did this come about? How did this miraculous thing that it just appears to me to be so logical, how did the government actually get to do it? Look, it's something that when um, when the election was happening, we campaigned strongly and we advocated um, that there should be no privatisation. As I said, we've been, we've been advocating since 1993 when Junie um, was first made private that we don't believe that there should be any you know, any private jails in New South Wales. We don't think it's the way to go. I don't think, we don't think that, um, you know, you should not profit from the justice system. Um, it, it's just morally not correct. Um, it's not the right thing to do. Um, and so we've been advocating for a very long time. And when the election came about, we advocated strongly with the shadow minister. We advocated strongly with the current um, premier and, um we we said we, we you know what's your stance on privatisation and and they've all said that they were against it so we've been holding them to account since they've been elected in um, and this is a great victory for us and for the the staff down at Junie. Well, congratulations, all I can say. Thank you very much. It's a very proud day. I've been a prison officer for 35 years, um, so this is one of our best wins that we've ever had and it's a very proud day for the Public Service Association and for every prison officer in New South Wales.
Well, there you go. And that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast. We've had a wild woolly ride. We've uh, been to uh, the economic, so- social, ec- uh, economic and social uh, outlook conference. We've uh, spoken to Robert Connolly about uh, the uh, Asia Pacific Academy Awards. We've uh, gone to a, a play, You Can't Escape an Aussie Boy, if you want to ring up, uh, 941- Nine eight three seven seven. After nine, uh, you could get a double pass to the uh, Tuesday performance on the fourteenth of November. It's at seven o'clock. This is the week that was Kevin's back in form, and uh, Coles AGM with Rafu and community members telling them that's just not good enough. Enough is enough. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.